This is episode four, part two of the Project Ungoverned podcast. Today we look at online higher education, its administration and governance. We speak with Joan Campbell about her experiences as an online course developer at a community college in the U.S., and we also reconnect with Professor Matt Dole, whom we first met in episode one, when we looked at governance more generally to talk about higher education specifically. This is Project Ungoverned, a podcast looking at the brave new world of online education, new ways of learning, new ways of teaching, and the promise of unprecedented access to education. The boom in new education technology has sparked a gold rush, attracting new companies, global institutions, and investors. But who creates the rules of engagement and who enforces them? Is online learning ungoverned? I'm Nicole Harkin, an award-winning writer and former good government analyst. And I'm Dr. Kim Oakes, an education strategist specializing in ed tech and international education. Together in this six episode podcast series, we talk to educators, learners, visionaries, and pioneers in online education from across the globe to look at the possibilities, challenges, and governance of online learning. Will online learning revolutionize educational access and opportunity? Or will it accelerate a downward spiral in educational quality? And what role will governance and related issues such as accountability, transparency, and inclusiveness play in determining the outcome? Join us as we explore the landscape of online education. Welcome to Episode 4, Part 2, in which we look at online higher education. In less than a decade, online higher education has gone from being the laughingstock of learning to the interesting stepchild of the traditional university to a cornerstone of education. Today, it's seen as critical to delivering sustainable, more affordable, and relevant education globally. After listening to the experiences of an online learner and instructor in part one of this episode, we look in part two at the administration and governance of online higher education. We first spoke with Joan Campbell, who told us what drew her into online education. My name is Joan Campbell. I have a master's in education and curriculum. I currently work for a not-for-profit credit union, and I designed their internal courses for training purposes. And previously, I was the director of an online program at a community college. And prior to that, I was a regular old classroom teacher. So I've been around the block education-wise. I have worked with students of every age. I have taught elementary school. I've taught Spanish immersion elementary school. I've taught middle school math. Uh, community college adult basic skills courses. And then as I started working at the community college, there was an opening in the online learning uh, department. And I was really fascinated by it because it seemed like a cross between teaching and graphic design. And I always was the teacher who was in the classroom at 6 a.m. trying to design my learning experiences for for the students because I loved that part. I loved the designing it part. And I loved the teaching part too, um, but that uh, space where you're thinking about how to put together curriculum and how to align objectives and activities and assessments to make sure that learning happens is something that I really, really love. And that was 
a unique thing about online learning. Um, you have the challenge of not being in the physical space with your student, but the opportunity to be really masterful about designing learning experiences. So I found that increasingly fascinating. Joan then told us about her role and the evolution of online education offerings at her community college in Oregon. And while I was working at the community college, I was working with faculty to help them design courses. And I also worked with a statewide group of community college e-learning professionals, and we all supported each other in helping faculty develop online courses. And that was super exciting. And most of the community colleges in Oregon started way back with like email courses or even correspondence courses, which were done through mail before that. And correspondence courses have been going on forever, for as long as there was a postal service, really. <laughs> People could write. And then things progressed and online learning became more of a reality, more of a possibility. and. Now it's kind of switched to where even face-to-face -face courses will have an online environment available so that students have a place to go and access documents or have a chat room or, you know, just have a centralized space to be able to communicate with their instructor. 100% of students had an online component to their learning because all teachers were creating at least a course shell for their course, whether it was face-to-face -face or online. I would say it would be about 50% of the student body was taking at least one fully online course. Sometimes people forget that online courses can be seen as an extension of correspondence courses, where students living rurally could take classes through the Postal Service. In other words, the idea is not new, but the enabling technology continues to evolve and create new opportunities and ways of learning. Joan offered her perspective on why students at her community college opted to enroll in online courses. So students elect to take online courses for so many different reasons. Sometimes it's because the section that they want to take with the professor face-to-face -face is full. Sometimes it's because they like working at their own pace and... Uh, and they think they can do that, but they may or may not be able to, depending on how the course is designed. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, sometimes that's the only way that a course is available. And so they take what they can get. Joan explained to us the process they used at her school to design courses and assure quality. We used a program called Quality Matters, which is out of University of Maryland, that has guidelines and rubrics for course design. Quality Matters is a peer review program. So what we would do is have our faculty follow the guidelines of Quality Matters, which assures alignment of the entire course and throughout the entire course. And then before the course is delivered to students, before the course goes live, it's reviewed by another faculty member. And that faculty member uses the rubric and the course has to pass at an 85% or higher before we would publish the course to students. And that was a phenomenal way to go about it. I think that, you know, there are some faculty who would say that it was a lot of work to do it that way, but the trade-off is the course quality. I have been very surprised in talking with uh, acquaintances and 
colleagues who work at universities where they don't have that kind of peer review program in place. And it floors me because it seems like it is absolutely essential in an online environment to make sure that you have everything in place right for students and that the course is easy to navigate and that the students are actually meeting the objectives that are set by the faculty member. So um, I'm sure that there will always be faculty resistance to that kind of a program, but I think that your really rock star faculty will embrace it because they know that it means um, higher course quality. And also embedded within that type of program is usually a review cycle where you know, after five years, the course needs to be re-reviewed. Does it still stand up? What needs to be added? So I'm a big proponent of that type of program. This peer review process built into the Quality Matters program is the opposite of what we heard from Emily smith Garing in an earlier episode when she alluded to the type of professor who used the same syllabus for their class for 30 years with very few updates. Quality Matters was also used to set guidelines for discussion boards in the online courses. And one of their guidelines is that a course should have ground rules for online discussion. So the faculty member can say, you know, what is expected, what types of behavior and discussion are expected within the course. And that was helpful, and especially because as an institution, if everybody is including that, then a lot of times you have faculty that are um, using the same exact guidelines. You know, they're sharing, and it becomes a norm throughout the institution that online discussion forums have these particular sets of rules. Joan pivoted to discuss the challenges in meeting and maintaining accessibility standards in online education programs. Accessibility standards are hard. And when faculty don't have blind students, for example, they don't necessarily know how to develop a course with them in mind. So accessibility is always a challenge. And, you know, anything that you include has to be readable by a screen reader. And faculty aren't hired for their capability to teach online. So whenever we have regulations in online education around accessibility or freedom of speech, we don't really have a mechanism for training faculty. And so I think that's a huge challenge. Joan highlights here the emerging nature of online education. The rules of the road, so to speak, are still in development. We then asked Joan about the expectations her college set out for their online instructors. Our guidance was that they were supposed to be on at least once every 48 hours, but that they were to communicate with their students explicitly about how frequently they would be in online, when students could expect to hear back, what their frequency was for returning assignments, graded assignments. And then, of course, if a faculty member has something come up in their personal life or whatever, they can communicate with students and say, hey, I have something coming up. I'm going to be out of touch for two or three days. Basic professionalism and, you know, explicit communication with students. We also asked Joan if all of the faculty were required to teach online courses or if they were allowed to choose. They got to choose. They really got to choose. And on occasion, if there was a course that we really had to have taught online and we didn't have faculty to teach it, we would hire faculty from elsewhere because you definitely don't need local faculty to teach an online course. 
all the time. One of the benefits of online education is you have a broader pool of potential faculty to pull from when hiring because the faculty don't need to be geographically co-located. So what qualifications did they look for in hiring specifically for the college's online courses? Were the qualifications any different from the ones they used in recruiting professors to teach in their traditional classes? Not necessarily, but if we were going to hire somebody outside, it would usually be someone who was recommended as someone who had taught this course at a different institution, and then we could reach out that way. And at my community college, we didn't hire for online, but there are community colleges where their online faculty is hired specifically by the online department, and they therefore are looking for experience with online courses, experience with using Quality Matters, you know, and good recommendations from students as well. Joan added some reflections on how online teachers are typically hired and what might need to change about the hiring process. I've always been very interested in in the fact that in our K-12 world, when we train teachers, they have to take civil rights courses, they have to take accessibility courses, they have to take a test to prove that they are capable of teaching. And then when we move to community college and universities, we say, oh, are you smart and do you have a PhD? Okay, well then you can teach. And not only that, but you can teach online and we have no idea what your tech skills are. For our government-funded schools, it seems like somehow there needs to be an assurance that faculty can teach online, that faculty understand what students' rights are. And I think that in higher education and and especially in online education, there needs to be something that assures that public money is being spent for people who can actually educate students. And I felt like I was uniquely qualified even though I kind of learned online learning on the fly, but I was uniquely qualified to serve in the online department at a college because I actually was educated in education. As Joan points out, in the United States, we hold K-12 teachers to very different standards than higher education professors. She adds that we cannot assume skilled researchers with PhDs know how to teach. Those who seek jobs in academia should be trained as educators. And when hiring faculty for online teaching positions, their technology skills need to be assessed. The reality is the profile of a professor is changing. This is something we'll look at in detail in Episode 6 when we look at some technologies that are already being used in education. Joan went on to share her thoughts about what teaching at online colleges might look like in the future. Right. And I think that more and more what we might see and what I hope that we see is the professor serving the role of coach and helping the students with practicing the skills that are taught, really giving great feedback to students, and the stuff that's really like the life-changing teaching stuff as opposed to just the grading stuff or being the sage on the stage and delivering the lecture. Um, To me, those aren't necessarily the actual teaching pieces. Like masterful teaching is facilitating the learning of the student. Enabling technologies are creating opportunities for new types of interaction, which will inevitably impact teaching and pedagogy. We then asked Joan about faculty compensation. So faculty were paid to if they were the developer of a course. And then faculty who reviewed the course would be paid for completing a course review. And then faculty are just paid based on 
you know, whether they're full-time or part-time faculty and they're paid by course load. We were just paying for instructional hours, not for number of students. I mean, we were a rural community college. So we're talking 25 students in a course. Faculty compensation is an area of great disparity among colleges. Faculty might be full-time or part-time with benefits. Tenured positions, which are common at traditional universities, are largely absent at online universities and colleges. Adjunct per faculty, who are issued a fixed-term paid contract without benefits, are usually compensated per course, per term, or per student, depending upon the institution. Course load, which is a term Joan used, refers to the number of courses a faculty member will teach each term. When we spoke to Amy Oberson, a graduate from an online university, in part one of this episode, she mentioned that many of her professors worked full-time and taught part-time. Teaching an online higher education can be a strategy for supplementing income, as Milena Waltras said in the same episode. It's also become more common in recent years for highly skilled part-time faculty at traditional or online universities to piece together benefits and income from multiple adjunct positions to make a living, sometimes taking on as many as five positions concurrently. We then asked Joan about governance and quality assurance initiatives. As part of her administrative responsibilities, Joan participated in an accreditation review. This is a quality assurance process by which an accreditation agency evaluates the services, operations, and programs provided by an institution of higher education. In our show notes, you will find more information about university accreditation, which can vary across regions. Yeah, so accreditation is really interesting, and I'm so glad that it exists because <laughs> it, it keeps schools polished. It keeps them on their game and it keeps them thinking about the right things. So when you're, when you have an online program and you have an accreditation visit, they're looking for things like, how do you know it's your students who are taking their courses? Are you using something like ProctorU or another webcam um, sort of service to make sure that your students are the ones who are taking their courses? And if you're not, then what are you doing? There are vendors like ProctorU that will use the webcam and they will have students show their driver's license to the webcam and then pull it back um, so that they can see their face and compare it to the driver's license. And then they will watch the student essentially take the test. And that will happen sometimes too, is that there'll be a proctored testing center that people will use, or sometimes they'll use something like called um, Lockdown Browser, which is where students can't open any other windows while they're taking a test. So one aspect of an accreditation review is to look at the processes in place to verify a student's identity. The accreditor wants to be sure that the recipient of the online degree actually did the work. This also helps to legitimize online education, a constant theme of critical importance. Joan went on to describe quality matters as it relates to the accreditation process. And they also are, really care about accessibility and which accessibility standards you're following. And then, of course, if you can point to a program like Quality Matters and say, yes, our faculty are designing their courses following the Quality Matters rubric and they are peer reviewing each other's courses before they go out to students, then accreditors are really happy about that because they know that the course design is strong and that there's a system in place. 
But yeah, accreditation is very, very exciting. And <laughs> they always want to dig into the online environment to ask all sorts of questions. However, <laughs> when you have an online environment, all the information is in one place, which isn't the case with faculty with classrooms and filing cabinets and <laughs> squirreling away things in their desk drawers. It's all in the learning management system. So I think it's much easier to prove your case when you're teaching online than when you're teaching face-to-face. -face. The learning management system, which might also be called the learning platform, is the central technology used to deliver courses at an online university. It can serve as a one-stop shop for accessing assignments, viewing feedback and grades, and engaging in classroom discussion. Joan provided a few examples. Yeah, we were using Canvas, and I heart Canvas so much, I cannot tell you. I think it's the best learning management system for higher ed out there. But there's tons of people still using Blackboard. There's people using Desire to Learn. There's people using Sakai. There's people using Moodle. I really like Canvas. They've got great support and it's very intuitive for both faculty and students. Well, and the administrative side to navigate. So I really like it. I'm a fan. Finally, Joan shared with us her thoughts on the governance of online courses at community colleges. I do think that a lot of the questions around governance and online education as we move forward are going to come down to funding. I think states and state education systems need to have a strategy for how they are funding online education because I think that it has happened over time most states just kind of haphazardly develop online course content, and there's a lot of duplication of spending going on. One of the things that I think eventually the community college system is going to have to face is if you have online English 111 at Community College A and Community College B, do you really need to pay the professor at Community College A and Community College B to develop that course? And some states like Washington State are more organized about that, but I think that every state needs to be organized about that because it is taxpayer money and we don't have enough money for education. So if we can find a way to streamline funding for course development and use more funding to support students, then I think that's a great thing. What Joan makes clear here is the distinction between pedagogy and curriculum. She points out opportunities to streamline and standardize curricula such as using one curriculum across multiple institutions of higher education. Faculty don't necessarily like that because they want to have their own spin, which is great. And I think specifically for your higher level courses where faculty are creating their researching and their writing and all that sort of stuff, that is awesome. Um, but there could be some streamlining that would make it, that would enable us to spend money on education differently. This type of streamlining would address a fundamental problem in higher education today. Historically, the professor had a broader role. The expert developing the curriculum, the experienced researcher, the thoughtful and reflective writer, the mentor, and the teacher well-versed in pedagogy. What's happened over time, however, has been the division of the professor's role into many jobs, often carried out by multiple contracted individuals, the course developer, the adjunct professor, the writing coach, and some tasks are even handled by automated technologies. The role of the professor has been divided up and devalued. 
universities are seeking to stand out through their course offerings rather than their faculty and are charging a premium for their unique and specialized curricula. What Jones suggests here is a paradigm shift. Streamlining the curricula across institutions of higher education, ultimately reducing costs, and putting a higher value on teaching and pedagogy. To give us some context about the current governance and administrative issues in higher education, both at traditional institutions and in online programs, we revisited our interview with Associate Professor Matt Dahl for Virginia Tech, who we first met earlier in Episode 1. So something that Virginia Tech and other universities are dealing with uh, right now, what, what is the goal of the university, right? And to what degree do we need to think of ourselves as responsive to market pressures, right? Of the demand of for credit hours, for example. Uh, now that's a that's something that of course runs against the grain of the whole sort of the values of the professoriate and the and the academic institutions to you know to which I thought I was committed. But that's the nature of the beast. And I'm quite concerned, you know, as a member of one big institution of higher learning, for example, when people have talked about developing, let's develop an online uh, program for this or that, there's one of the questions is, well how, well, how do we know that we've actually got an educational program there? What Matt's describing here are the market forces drawing traditional institutions of higher education into online learning. The question he poses is, how does a university know if a classroom-based education program could be taught effectively online? Matt gives us an example from his university. For example, we have a certificate of that is for government workers. It's with what's called the ICMA, the International City Managers Association in Virginia. And it basically trains government workers who are interested in building kind of their leadership skills or their analytical skills. There's a sort of four-part certificate. That is not actually formally an online class in the university's definition because it's actually videoed, it used to be by Polycom and now it's videoed by Zoom to basically pockets of all over the state of Virginia where in the case of this program, often in partnership with their employers. So like the city of Fairfax will uh, you know, have a couple of their bureaucrats. So in that case, we that's a very successful program and I think has been you know, there's a temptation to say, oh, this has been a successful program. Let's amp it up, put it online. And as somebody who, again, who is at the operator level, who is trying to deliver academic content, right, who's trying to help students learn. We've heard during this series some cautionary tales about the initial investments and ongoing resources required to scale and maintain online courses. Another lesson was to consider carefully the learning styles, schedules, and technical capabilities of the learners, which are important in designing a successful program. Matt went on to describe how these market forces in higher education are impacting the role of professor and student more generally. Let me say that it's hard to differentiate my parts of my reaction to that sort of a conversation that have to do with my concern for the well-being of our students and making sure that people are learning and anxiety about my turf being eroded. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think that's an you know that's another part of this, which is I'm. Uh, part of an institutional form and right, my position, my monopoly of, of authority as a professor has been greatly diminished by online student uh, reviews and the profusion of online sort of information, ways that people can communicate. But I think there's another kind of broader, which is related social transformation in society 
those different sets of priorities among students, learning versus credentialing. I sort of th- see those two that, that distinction as a really interesting tension or way of thinking about a, uh, a tension in the relationship between the student and their, you know, in their education, right? Why are they in school? There are so many forces in our society now that make and help to cultivate in the mind of the student that they are a consumer. In our discussions with Joan and Matt, looking at both online and traditional institutions of higher education, we saw some common governance and administrative issues that could apply to both online and traditional institutions of higher education. First, as we were reminded, distance learning is not a new concept, but has its roots in correspondence courses dating back centuries. As enabling technologies continue to evolve, new ways of learning and teaching become possible, and the roles of the professor and student continue to change as well. Second, we learned about accreditation and governance initiatives to maintain standards in higher education. Quality Matters, an online course quality assurance program, was mentioned favorably in an accreditation review process. Could lessons and tools from the Quality Matters peer review process be applied to course development strategies at traditional universities? Third, the governance of higher education involves stakeholders well beyond the university, such as accreditation agencies or professional bodies. Students who are evaluating possible online degree programs need to consider longer-term career goals and related requirements, such as licensure and recognition of an online diploma. Finally, enabling technologies have now made it possible for traditional universities to create new distance learning offerings to increase access and opportunities. As Joan put it, the most important factors in this transferability are good course design and quality teaching. After discussing teaching, learning, administration, and governance in higher education, we were left with some questions and reflections. Online education appeals to students for very different reasons, and it offers flexible learning options. But are online degree programs suitable for everyone? And as the cost of tuition at most institutions of higher education continue to soar, we have to stop and ask, what could change this? Some questions from our discussions with Joan and Matt we want to take forward to our symposium in January are, what would a more streamlined, cost-effective higher education system look like? And how would curricula, pedagogies, and the roles of professor and student evolve accordingly? What does faculty compensation and workload at online institutions look like today? And what could it look like in the future? And are enabling technologies restricting or allowing for more creative teaching? Project Ungovern takes place within the Bosch Alumni Network a network which consists of people who've been supported in one way or another by the Robert Bosch Stiftung. The network is coordinated by the International Alumni Center, IAC Berlin, a think and do tank for alumni communities with social impact. The IAC supports this podcast series and symposium. If you want to know more about the power of networks, visit iac-berlin.org. That's it for Episode 4, Part 2 of the Project Ungoverned podcast. Tune in for Episode 5, where we look at online education in K-12 schools.